Hi. Love to all of you. Love to the vineyard. Love to the whole island while we're at it. A few days before Brexit, you need a little extra love, right? Oh, it's such a joy to spend. Or oh, was that, should I not have said that? I have no idea what I'm doing. We almost speak the same language, but not quite. And I gave somebody the peace sign earlier today when they let me cross the road on my run, but it was the American version of the peace sign. And then I, I just, I, I got it all wrong. I'm so sorry. Who knows how many more things are to come. Um, what a joy to spend the night with you. Would you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1? 1 Thessalonians chapter one. Um, I came up playing in bands in the 90s before indie rock was mainstream. And uh, when we would go on tour or play a gig, we would always play our best material. Like you don't show up in front of a crowd and experiment. You know, you play the hits. We had no hits, but we played what our, we, we, our dream was to become a hit down the road. Um, and, uh, and so, I don't know, something of that is in my muscle memory. And so, when I get a chance to travel, uh, my preference is to give a teaching that I've done before that is out of my life, that I feel is a life message and all of that, and not waste your time. But as I was gearing up for our time together in prayer a little bit, I just had 1 Thessalonians 1 come to the surface of my heart multiple times. And so, this is a letter written a very long time ago on the other side of the world where it was much warmer. And uh, from Paul and Silas and Timothy to this brand new church that was likely just a year or two old in the city of Thessaly. And it's not written to you, and it's not written to me, but yet I feel there is something from the Spirit of God for you here tonight and the movement that you represent. To that end, please stand with me for the reading of scripture. Not talk, stand. <laughs> Come on, all right, better start reading. 1 Thessalonians chapter one. Come Holy Spirit. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering and with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message ran out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Take a seat. To start off, would you do me a favor and close your eyes for a moment? And I just want you to draw to mind somebody you love that you have not seen in a year or two or three. Just take a moment. An old friend from university or an uncle or church member that moved away. Okay, you have it. Now, I just want you to think of one thing about them. <laughs> Speaking in tongues at a young age. 
without an interpretation, classic vineyard. <laughs> I'm messing with you. Okay. Jet lag, I'm so sorry. Open your eyes, uh-huh, there you are. Um, somebody that's close enough for me to hear you, who came to mind and what was the character trait? Somebody nice and loud. Yes. My sister. Your sister, and what was the character trait? Uh, we haven't seen each other since uh, most of us 14 years. Like, wow. Uh, Got it. Okay, thank you for that. Somebody else? Friend from my gap year. Uh-huh. Uh, gentleness. Friend from my gap year, gentleness. One more. Yes. My cousin and her laugh. My cousin and her laugh? Well done. Now, I'm guessing that what came to your mind, a laugh or gentleness, was not a random side trait about your cousin or your friend from your gap year or your sister. I'm guessing that what came to mind was one of, if not the most salient characteristics of what makes them, them. Notice in Paul's opening kind of salvo, or Paul and Silas and Timothy, it's easy to forget that, his line in verse two, we always thank God for all of you. I mean, when you come to mind, we just, we feel heart of gratitude, just swell up from the inside and continually make mention of you in our prayers. Like you come before God in our prayers. And then he writes, we remember before our God and our Father. Now listen to his most salient memory of the church in Thessaly. Your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by what? Love and your endurance inspired by what? Hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you pay close attention, you notice that little triad of faith, hope, and love that Paul is so famous for. Of course, the most well-known example is 1 Corinthians 13, and now remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. But many people don't realize that that triad, faith, hope, and love, is all over Paul's writings. In fact, in his kind of theological rubric, it plays a key part. But here Paul does something really interesting in that he pairs one triad of faith, hope, and love that's all over his writings with another triad that is unique to the letter to the Thessalonians, work, labor, and endurance. Now, I think there are all sorts of implications in this one little memory of Paul for you and for me and for our leaders and for our church. Let's just take each one in turn. First off, your work produced by faith. The word work in Greek is ergon, and ergon is used in the corpus of Paul's writings for three different types of work, for just work in general, as in farming or fishing, for the work of social justice, as in Paul's common phrase, good works, and then third, for the work of the gospel. For many of us in the room as pastors or as leaders, our work is a combination of all three. But notice that for Paul, it is a work that is produced by faith. Now, that sounds a little bit weird to our Western ears because ever since the Protestant Reformation, which we live in the wake of, we think of work and faith as enemies, not as friends, as in tension with each other. But this is based on a misreading of the nature of faith. Dallas Willard, who's a philosopher I love, defined faith as confidence grounded in reality. I like that, confidence grounded in reality. So many Greek scholars, not that you care, but I think it really matters, have made the point that a better English translation of the Greek word that we most of the time translate faith is the English word trust. Because trust is more than just a cognitive, like, yeah, in the mental furniture of my mind, there's space for this doctrine or that idea or that image. Trust is emotional, it's relational, and it has to do with how you actually live. We can do our work from a place of confidence and a kind of inner peace when we trust in God. When we trust that the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. I love Eugene Peterson's work on Genesis 1 and 2, if you've read any of his books on the pastoral life. And he has this great insight into Genesis 1 and how in both Jewish culture and in biblical theology, the day starts with sunset. 
and the week starts with Sabbath. So you read in Genesis 1, it was evening and it was morning the first day. And he just makes the point that, you know, in a biblical theology of time, your day starts with sleep and your week starts with rest. And then he writes that it's as if God was teaching justification by grace through faith from page one of the Bible. And his pastoral insight is that when you wake up in the morning, you wake up into a work that God has already been doing while you were still in bed. As Jesus said of the Father, my Father is always working. And you just get to join God in what he has already been on about even while you were asleep. From this deep place of confidence in God's goodness and his involvement in your life and your work and your church and his power to overcome any and every obstacle. Then, second, is your labor prompted by love. There comes a day for every pastor or leader when leadership isn't fun anymore. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Usually it's around day three. Um, when your cynicism, you're British, you have plenty of that, right? I'm just here to add a little more. Um, no, what I mean by that is there comes a day when work is hard and when it's difficult, when work becomes, in Paul's language, labor. Another way that's translated is toil. And this is a word that is reminiscent of Genesis, not one and two, but Genesis three and the curse, which most, many people misread the curse in Genesis three and say, well, work is cursed or whatever. No, I'm sorry, work is the curse. Nothing could be further from the truth. In Genesis one, work is the blessing. Rule over all the fish of the sea, like rule, subdue everything. Like work is the blessing. It's the flow of life through us to, from creator to creation. In biblical theology, in Genesis three, work is cursed. Meaning for now, all of us, no matter how good our work is or how like we're in the kingdom of God, we serve the church, all of that stuff, still like there are thorns and thistles in the ground and in your small group. Like they're all over the place, right? There's just, there's this tension. And that's, on a serious note, that's not to add cynicism. That's just to speak with honesty to the fact, that the hard truth, the reality, that there are times when work becomes labor. When you arrive at that place, more than ever, love must become your motivation. I love Paul's turn of phrase, labor prompted by love, or another way to translate that is love motive, I'm sorry, labor motivated by love. That's the idea. Where does that inner drive to do what you do come from? For Paul, when he thinks of the church in Thessaly, it was love. And of course, love here does not mean desire. Love is a very frustrating English word because there's so much breadth and complexity in a biblical theology of love, and it's so shallow and flat in English culture or Western culture. Love, many of us, we hear the word love and we think of desire, like I love tacos. And by that I mean I want to eat tacos, right? Not give my life away for, no, I want them to give their life, they already did, they're dead. Um, <laughs> I wanna eat it, right? And so what many of us mean by love is we mean desire or we mean nice feelings, which are not bad at all, though they're, they're latent with narcissism. The kickback that you get at an emotional level or the pleasure you get from someone or something. When we talk about love in the way of Jesus, we talk about this Greek idea of agape, which means to will the good of another ahead of your own, no matter the cost to yourself. Jesus defined love this way, greater agape has no one than this, that a person lay down their life for their friends. That was Jesus' vision of love. It was to lay down your life for the good of another. And agape is the only fitting motivation for our work. And it is the only motivation that will keep us going for the long haul. We must do our work from a place of faith and motivated by love for God, from God, for people, and from people, and even for the work itself. But even love alone, at least in Paul's mind, isn't quite enough to keep you and I in leadership over the long haul. Finally, we need, quote, endurance inspired by hope. When work becomes labor, and then when labor drags on for a month or a year or a decade, when it runs up against a leadership split or a new church plant in town that's cooler and younger or a moral failure of a staff member or a scathing criticism or a nasty email or a budget deficit or a decline in attendance, that is when we need endurance. The Greek word here can also be translated patience. We need patience. 
or another translation is doggedness. We recently got a dog, pray for me. Um, it was against all of my better wishes, but for my children. And she is lovely. And when that dog has a bone, she does not stop until it is incinerated. Like there's nothing about, I love that word picture of a dog with a bone. There's something about that kind of doggedness that just unflappable, resilient, I'm here until the end. And the idea here is that it's a hope, it's an endurance that is inspired by hope. Inspired meaning the emotional energy source is hope. Think about when we use the word inspiration, we mean there's like this emotional like lift, there's this intellectual creativity, and there's even this physical generativity, right? We're inspired in that moment. Our endurance is inspired by hope. And yet hope is yet another word that we misread it doesn't mean wishful thinking, as in I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. <laughs> you live in England, good luck with that. <laughs> it doesn't mean positive thinking, as in you know mind over matter or think. It doesn't mean name it and claim it spirituality, which is often is just a Western form of self-reliance and individualism that is propagated as a form of theology, it's not. Hope is the confident expectation of coming good based on the purpose and person of God confident expectation of coming good based on the purposes and purpose and person of God. And it's the only thing that will get us through, especially in a cultural moment like the one we in. Optimism will not survive the post-Christian apocalypse. Only hope will. We must stay in our call with all of the energy that it demands from our soul, not just our body, not because we're positive, not because the odds are in our favor or because our strategy is smart, often in spite of those things, but because of an inner confidence that Jesus is alive and back from the dead and at work in our church and at work in our life and through our life and no matter what comes or doesn't come in some way, we trust and we look forward and we lean over into the horizon and we endure in hope. Now, all of that was very straightforward in this exegesis of the text. But as I think about Paul's kind of little memory here of the church in Thessalonica, I'm struck by how often this could not be said of me. Like if somebody were to draw me to mind, I don't think this is the letter they would write to me, you know? I'm struck by how often my work is not produced by faith. Often it's instead produced by anxiety and the need for control. The opposite of faith is not doubt. Doubt is the search for truth. I think Jesus at some level is into it because I think Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And I think he would have you and I follow the truth wherever it takes us. The opposite of fear as best I can, I'm sorry, the opposite of faith as best I can tell is fear. And fear-based leadership is dangerous. Because as long as I need the people and the circumstances of my life to go a certain way for me to be okay and at peace, there is no way around it. At some point, I will manipulate, I will bully, I will dominate, and I will, f and I will make nervous the people that I lead and I love. We have a little saying back home at the church I'm a part of after a number of years um, working out spiritual formation in a local church, and we say it this way, coercion is not a fruit of the spirit. <laughs> it's not love, joy, peace, patience, coercion, making people do what they need to do to grow and mature into Christ-likeness, right? No, it's not a fruit of the spirit, and that is a lesson that we have come to the hard way. But until we deal with our deepest fears, we absolutely cannot lead from a place of trust. Robert Mulholland and his book, Invitation to a Journey, which is one of my favorite books, I read it every single year, I just read it a few weeks ago again, in one chapter writes about the four layers of purgation, um, which is not common language to us, it's ancient Christian language from very long time ago, over a thousand years old, in the kind of vision of Christian spiritual formation and stage there, and it's beautiful. And he just writes about kind of layers of dealing with sin as we are purged, so to speak, is the idea of purgation, as we follow Jesus. And layer one is like gross sins, not gross like ew, but gross like the major sins, you know, it's ancient language, but sins like, you know, murder and violence and theft and crime and so on. Layer two is conscious sins. So there are sins that are kind of socially acceptable, but are not the 
heart of God. So in our generation, it would be, I think, a lot of media and Netflix. It would be gossip. It would be materialism. It would be military violence. It'd be a number of things like that. Layer three is what he calls unconscious sins. Now, this is like more sins of omission than commission. It's like, you know, stuff we don't do. It's when we do stuff for the wrong reason. And then he writes about layer four, which is what he calls trust structures. Trust structures are those things that we think we need to live happy and at peace, but that don't go by the name of Jesus. It's what Thomas Keating called emotional programs for happiness. It's what our Calvinist brothers and sisters call idolatry or the idols of the heart. What they mean by that, that's not actually biblical theology. In the Old Testament, idol is a totem by which you interact with a spiritual being. What they mean by idols of the heart is it's more about like the inner dynamics of your priority and things that have become, they would say it's the good thing that became ultimate. Things that have have in your heart come to take the place of God where you think you need it and you feel you need it to live happy or at peace or whatever it is. Psychologists use the language in secular culture of our attachments that later become addictions if we're not careful. Whatever you want to call it, whatever language you want to put around this idea, all of these things, which are not necessarily bad things, in fact, many of them are good things and many of them exist inside church leadership. They are these things that we think we need to be okay. And it is very hard to lead people when you need something from them. Be it attendance, be it approval, be it accolades, whatever the financial support, whatever it is, it sabotages prophetic and pastoral leadership, which very similar to parenting, um, will often require us to lead people somewhere they would rather not go. Indeed, that isn't how Henry Nouwen defines spiritual maturity as from the life of Peter, as being willing to be led where you would rather not go. That was his definition of a mature follower of Jesus. We will never have the courage to lead this way or even to live this way from this deep place of trust as long as our trust structures remain intact and we remain locked in the prison of our anxiety and our need for control. We have to come to a place, I'm gonna talk about this tomorrow morning, of what Ignatius of Loyola called indifference, or many scholars argue a better translation of the Spanish is freedom. This place of inner indifference and freedom and yieldedness where whatever comes or doesn't come, we're okay because we're living in the kingdom of God with Jesus. Kind of people whose work is prompted by trust. Secondly, I'm struck by how often my labor is not prompted or again motivated by love. I don't know about you, but I doubt I've ever had a 100% pure motive for anything. At best, it is a mixed bag. But you don't have to be all that contemplative or some navel-gazing introspective person to realize how easy it is for leaders in the church to do the right thing for all the wrong reasons. So much of what we do is motivated um, not by love or as in agape, but is motivated by any number of other things, fear and the need for control, as we just said, or the need for approval, in particular, if we're living with a father wound or a mother wound or a deficit of self-confidence due to our family of origin, our experience, or any number of things. I cannot tell you how many lead pastors I know who have deep father wounds, particularly the most successful ones. All sorts of studies have been done on CEOs and father wounds, and there's a radical disproportionate number of very successful people with very deep wounds that come from family of origin. Often behind the bravado of an Elon Musk or the boasting of a celebrity pastor is more often than not a deficit of love. Could be that, or it could just be greed, which is a little foolish. There are much easier ways to make a lot more money and a lot less time. But there are ways to manipulate the system for financial gain. Envy is another driver for all sorts of us. I think of that line in Ecclesiastes, and I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now that is British cynicism for you right there. (laughs) All right, he must have been from the island or something, I don't know. 
But it's truth in that so much of what is done out there, the, the root motivation is actually envy. It's like, ooh, I wanna be like that person. I need to beat that person. I need to be as good or as cool or as smart or as successful or as spiritual or as Christ-like as that person. And how often are we just run by the attempt to keep up with another church, another pastor, another ministry, another movement? All of this is just egoistic ambition. Now, my point isn't to make us feel guilty tonight for all of our, at best, mixed motivations or even to take you into the dark morass of introspection, though there is, a, there is a healthy version of that. It's just to say that when we are run by these kinds of motivations, not only are we a danger to others, as we're more likely to lead out of anxiety or some form of ego, which the end result of that is almost always bad, but we're also a danger to ourselves. We're more, far more vulnerable to burnout, which is a massive problem for our generation of pastors. I'm just at that age, I'm 39 now, where I'm watching a number of leaders that I start, number of leaders that are 10 or 20 years ahead of me that kind of my eye are on, fall out of the race, to use language from the New Testament due to a scandal, due to burnout, due to any number of things, and a number of the leaders that I came up with are no longer in it. Through the, the big three, in my experience, are either a, a kind of moral failure, um, or even more often, a moral relational failure. It's been really interesting to watch the string of celebrity scandals in my country, hopefully not in yours, over the last decade, where there actually was not an affair or stealing money or anything like that. It was just a breakdown of emotional health and relational love, or theological failure, usually for my generation when pastors go progressive and in doing so sign their own death sentence often. But third, there is a kind of emotional failure which is where I have lost the most of my friends. Not to some moral scandal or relational breakdown or theological drift, but just to exhaustion. Crazy thing about burnout is that it comes for all of us. Again, just here to encourage you from the West Coast, but <laughs> burnout is coming for you, you know? But it is interesting, you know, it doesn't care. It's, it's across denominations, it's across traditions, it's across genders, it's, it doesn't care how good your theology is, it doesn't care how smart or strategic you are, it doesn't really even care how Christ-like you are. It just comes for all of us. And if you're run by egoistic ambition, it will eventually catch up to you. Leadership is just too hard to do for ambitious reasons, not long term. I think of the compare and contrast we hear about from older, wiser leaders of driven versus led, and I'm sure you've sat through that before. How some leaders, some people are driven, like just have this inner, like I have to go do it by who knows what, and others, are led by the Spirit of God at the pace of Jesus. There's truth in that. When we are driven by motivations other than love, by self-interest in whatever form it may take, we have little sense of God's presence and his power and his peace. Ego is exhausting. It will just run you into the ground as you compete for the Darwinian social status and you will never win. It is a rigged system. It's like the lotto, there's just no chance there is always a church or ministry or leader that's bigger than you or cooler than you or more sophisticated than you or more whatever than you. Again, just here to encourage you all the way from the West Coast of America. But comparison, I actually find a beautiful comfort in this. Comparison will just eat your joy for breakfast. Whereas when we are led by the Spirit, we just slip over into, again, what Thomas Kelly called the unhurried center of peace and power and live with this deep inner contentment in our life in the kingdom, whatever comes. But until we give up our egoistic ambition, we will never become the kinds of leaders who are motivated by love. Finally, I'm struck by how often my endurance is not inspired by hope, by a confident expectation of coming good based on the purpose and person of God. Instead, my emotional energy often comes from, I don't know, rah-rah optimism, you know, it's gonna be great, the best is yet to come, or more often, from a, at least in my personality, from a sense of striving, I kind of just grin it and bear it and flex the willpower muscle until bedtime, rather than a let go and trust in God, which is, again, basically burnout waiting to happen. How many of us know leaders, many of them still very young, on the verge of a cynical, tired, low-power kind of ministry. Until we overcome optimism and its cognate of cynicism and striving and its friend that we call fatigue, 
or whatever faulty energy source it is that we look to day after day, we will never become the kind of leaders who, like those in Thessalonica, are inspired by hope. And this is where leadership, you guys, is such a gift. Because leadership, more than anything else that I know of, other than maybe parenting, which is a form of leadership, or marriage, which is, I had to learn the hard way, definitely not a form of leadership. <laughs> um, but leadership will expose what is under the line, meaning what is in kind of the inner architecture of our hearts, in particular our trust structures, our motivations, and where, what our source is for emotional energy. In all honesty, I am a B minus leader at best. I feel a little weird when John and Debbie invited me to a leadership conference. It is an honor, and I owe a debt to you in the vineyard more on that in a minute, and so that is why I said yes, but I really don't feel that I'm a very good leader, so I'm not here to like give you all the leadership tips other than if you have them, please email me because I could use a little help. Um, I get away with way more than I should because Jesus is kind and I'm on a lovely team back home. But leadership, in all honesty, is not really my life call or my, my desire. I'm much more interested in the growth of the soul. And for me, leadership is a means to an end. But the one thing that I really love about leadership on the days when I just wanna quit and just go do something far more introverted is that nothing will expose the areas where I need to grow and give me an opportunity to do so like leadership. Because at an external level, you know, leadership exposes all of your flesh in Paul's language. Just all of your stuff will come out. Particularly if you talk as part of your job or whatever. There's that great line in Proverbs, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. <laughs> Living proof of said wisdom, right? Like, so when you lead, like, just your stuff will come out. The good and the bad and the ugly. It's much harder to hide when you're on a microphone or you're up in front or you're at the head of the small group or whatever the thing is. And then at an internal level, even if you fake it really good, right, or you're early and people don't really know who you are yet, still, at an internal level, leadership exposes the inner architecture of our trust structures, our motivations, and where we draw our emotional reservoir from. It shows us where we trust in Jesus and where we're still imprisoned to anxiety and the need for control. Where we are really motivated by agape just to will the good of another out of gratitude to God and where we're still running on the old-fashioned egoic operating system. Where we are striving you know, based on positive thinking or whatever in this vain attempt to keep up our energy and where we're just living from this abiding or just this resting in the love of God and his goodness and confidence in it. And this exposure is a pain in the neck. I hate it and I love it and I'm so grateful for it. It really is a gift. And it is an invitation from Jesus to meet him under the line of our life and really let him in there. Let him do that work of healing and freedom in our trust structures and our motivations and our emotional energy to become the kind of people, to let Jesus form us into the kind of women and men and leaders whose work is produced by faith, whose labor is prompted by love, and whose endurance is inspired by hope. The result of leaders like that, and there are many of you across the room tonight already, is in Paul's language, a model church. I love that language. You became a model, he writes in verse seven, to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message ran out from you, not only Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere, all over the world. The word there for model in Greek is typos. It means where we get the word like typology. It means a, a type or a template or a form that you would pour something into. The church in Thessalonica became the, the model church. It became the kind of churches that other churches all over the region and then all over the Mediterranean, all over the world would look to and, and copy after that type, that template, that form and pour your church into it. And the same, in all honesty, is true of you at the vineyard. You became a model for churches up and down the west coast of America, all over the UK. I think of how many of my Anglican friends over here are really just like vineyard leaders with nicer buildings they didn't pay for. <laughs> or, <laughs> or I think of your influence on the west coast of America. I mean, I think of all of my best friends who lead churches, none of whom are in the vineyard and all of whom would quote John Wimber, look to you guys, copy our model after you, would come to our service and it would feel, we would do ministry time at the end. And, the debt that we owe to you, the, I have no way to, I was trying to 
figure out how to say it. I have no way to express the gratitude that we have for you. For years, we were like charismatic but confused, right? We just had no, and America's very different in this matter. It's very polarized and it's, there's, very, there's, there's very little like it. And so when you became a model for us of a way to live in the spirit but still have our mind open and open the scriptures and it was just, you have no idea what a gift you are to the world. I bless you. May your best and most influential years be ahead of you and not behind. But notice how the church in Thessalonica became a model church. Back up to verse four. For we know, brothers and sisters, you're our family. Um, We know that you're loved by God, that God has chosen you. All of this started in the love of God for you and for me. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, it wasn't just rhetoric or intellect, but with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. I love it, you're all about that. You know how we lived among you for your sake. We, Paul, Silas, Timothy, would incarnate the gospel in the city. And then he writes this, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Notice that. You became imitators, not just of the Lord, but of us and the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit, meaning you followed our example, And so, as a result, you became a model, and Paul goes on. Now we are getting right to the core of Paul's leadership philosophy, that a model church is the byproduct of model leaders. I think of Paul's line to the Corinthians in chapter four, therefore I urge you to imitate me for this reason. Have you ever said that to your small group? I urge you to imitate me. (laughs) Don't. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. Listen to this. He will remind you of my theology. No, it's not what he says. That's great. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Or later, same letter, chapter 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Or other translations have, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Or to the Philippians, join together in following my examples, just as you have us as a what? Model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Then later he writes, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen it in me, put it into practice and then the God of peace will be with you. Or to Timothy, a young leader, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Or to Titus, another leader, in everything, set them an example by doing what is good. And this is just a sampling. I could take 10 minutes and read to you line after line after line from Paul. For Paul, as best as I can tell, leadership is about example and invitation. It's not about coercion and control. It's just come follow me as I follow Jesus. It's not be perfect as I am perfect. Only God can say that. Even Jesus did not say that. It's come follow me as I follow, follow Jesus the way I follow Jesus and you will do really well in the kingdom of God. Now for years I read a line like, you know, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And in all honesty, I know we're not great at honesty in the church, but in all honesty, I thought that was so pretentious thought, what an arrogant, like, really? Just be like me, everybody. Great, I cannot imagine saying that to my church, ever. But in all honesty, I've come full circle and with a lot of humility, I've actually come to think that, you know, if I can't say that, if I can't say, hey, follow Jesus kind of the way that I follow Jesus, not perfect, but follow Jesus the way I do and you'll do well in this city, then I'm not sure I have any business being in leadership at a church. Pete Scazzaro of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality in his original book, The Emotionally Healthy Church, which is such a weird title and such an incredible book, um, has this beautiful little maxim, as the leaders go, so goes the church. He's right. He goes on to say that, you know, a church will rarely rise above the level of health, maturity, and radical discipleship of its core leadership team. The positive way to say that is that in Ruth Haley Barton's language, in her book, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership, which by the way, if you've not read, ah, oh, what a gem. She writes, 
the best gift you can give the people you lead is your transforming selves. Do you believe that? Notice your grammar, by the way, your transforming self, not transformed. That's awkward grammar and really good theology. The challenge of leadership is that we're all in process. We're people in process and we lead other people in process. That's why email is a pain, right? It's just, that's why it's hard. And it's lifelong, we never arrive. We need a theology of journey, not a theology of destination. We're never there. But the best gift that you can give to your church, and I really think that I can give to mine, is not your teaching, or your event production, or your skill with a guitar, or your songwriting, or your organizational skill, or your acumen for systems, or your hospitality, or any of those wonderful things. The best gift that you can give your church is you, humble, imperfect, but healthy, whole, and as much like Jesus as you possibly can be at this stage of your life. And the opposite is true, and just go easy on me here, but likely the greatest threat to the people you lead is also yourself. We wanna think that you know, the Satan is the great danger, and he is. Or that secularism, that's what we really need to worry about, and it is, it is not a good thing. <laughs> or it's the wolf in the flock, or in the small group, or the whatever, yes, keep your eye out. But you know, I can't help but wonder that the greater danger in all of it is me. Or is you? The greatest, I mean, the greatest amount, nobody could do more damage to our church than I could. I think that's why Paul writes, watch your life and your doctrine closely. We could go around the room and tell stories of leaders who caused great damage, not because of lack of intelligence or charisma or even anointing, but because of simple ignorance of or a more complex denial of their shadow side. Shadow side, that's not biblical language. It comes from Jungian psychology, if you're familiar with that at all, and it's secular in frame, but I actually think, it's not truth with a capital T, but actually it really does fit well, I think, into biblical theology and spiritual formation. And the basic idea is just that, you know, all of us um, have this kind of ego image Jung would say, this persona that we project out in the world of the person that we want to be, we aspire to be, and we want other people to think we are, as this strategy for us to feel successful and safe and good and get people to like us and follow us and do good things like plant a church or whatever, and we, we project this ego image out into the world. The problem is it's, it's a fantasy, it's not reality. Some of it's reality, but it's missing a whole bits and pieces of who we actually are. And so it creates what he called a shadow, this part that is hidden both from the public, the part that doesn't fit your image, right, or your brand or your persona or your personality as it goes out into the world, and often hidden in private, often hidden from our own conscious awareness. Often this is unconscious. And it could be, it's not all sin, it's not all bad stuff. It could just be like, you really want people to think that you're like, I went through a hippie stage when I was about 18. And it, I, I, I want to tell myself it was cool at the time. I don't think it was. But I was like the most stressed out, type A driven 18 year old around. And I hated it. And I used to get made fun about it by my family and my friends. And I just thought hippies were so cool because they were so relaxed and chill. So for about a year, I wore tie dye and I wore a hemp necklace and I grew my hair out just hideous and would never wash it or anything. And I wear Birkenstocks. And then I woke up one day and I realized, I don't have a laid back bone in my body. What am I doing? I don't like this music. I stink. I need a haircut. This is stupid. And I went to Gap and I bought a sweater and got a haircut, you know? (laughs) What in the world? But that was an early experiment in ego ideal, right? So it could just be like, you you want to appear relaxed, but actually you're still very much in process and you're still dealing with like a, an anxious personality or you want people to think that you're really extroverted, but actually you're not, you need a lot of time alone. Or it could be much more dark or nefarious or scary. But what happens is there's always a dissonance between our ego image and our shadow, between the fantasy and the reality, between the public and the private. And with that dissonance comes shame. I'm a bad person. Insecurity, anxiety, fear, what if people find out, or just tension and inner conflict or neurosis. Because not only do we hide our shadow from the world, we also often hide it from ourselves and even attempt to hide it from God. 
because it's just too scary or it's too painful or it's not, we don't like what's in there. We don't like who we actually are. And so we live with the dissonance and the hypocrisy rather than with inner peace and freedom and humility and authenticity. I say that because the most dangerous kinds of leaders are those that refuse to explore their shadow and let it drag it out into the light of God's love and his truth. Could be leaders who are running from a father wound or trying to impress people or fit into a mold that just is not God's call on your life. But those of us that never deal with the underlying, uh, kind of under the surface, the under the line stuff of our trust structures, like what do we look to to live a happy life? Our motivations, why do we do what we do? And our emotional energy, where do we get the resilience to do it another day? These are the leaders who often do great damage over time. They're actually often quite successful early on, but it comes back around in the end. The 15th century, that fierce leader, St. Teresa of Avalia in Spain, said it this way, almost all problems in the spiritual life stem from a lack of self-knowledge. That might be an overstatement, but I would say the same is true for spiritual leadership. Almost all problems in spiritual leadership stem from a lack of self-knowledge, in particular of the interior architecture of our heart before God. So this work, what some call shadow work, others just call it spiritual formation, or you can just call it prayer. But it is core to our life and to our leadership. So to end, all tonight really is, is just a loving invitation with a ton of humility for you to explore what's under the line of your heart. And just let the light and the love of the Spirit of Jesus shine on all that you are, to cooperate with Jesus in the integration and healing and freedom of your soul. Because in my experience, Jesus is pretty much always at work underneath the surface as well as above. He's at work in our church and in our city and through our teaching and our leadership and our thing, absolutely. But all of that, it's the byproduct or the fruit in the language of Jesus of what Jesus is up to in here, in me or in you. I think he's always at work to move me and you from fear to faith, from egoic ambition to agape, and from striving to hope. He's always at work to set you and I free from our trust structures and our motivations and our emotional energy sources that do not go by the name of Jesus himself. And in my experience, more often than not, the way he does that is through our pain and our suffering. It doesn't mean it's from him, could be from the Satan, it could be from life this world, it could be from any number of places. But I think that Jesus is in there with his invitation to come into the fire, I think of that beautiful story in Daniel, and join him there. What if the very aspects of life that we all wanna run from, a relational breakdown, a failure, a repeating criticism, a mental health issue, what if each one is actually an invitation to meet Jesus in? and to let him do a deep work of healing, freedom, and joy, and love, and peace in your soul and in mind, to become the kind of people whose work is produced by faith, whose labor is prompted by love, and whose endurance is inspired by hope. Let's stand together. Just one last thought before we pray. As I this is not in the text, but just as I was in prayer this morning for our time, I kept thinking about um, how, you know, if you read the contemplatives, in particular writers like St. John or St. Teresa, which were basically introverted charismatics, you know, they would say that dealing with all of this under the line stuff is less something that we do and more something that God does to us through a process that they called the dark night of the soul. We would just often call it a time of spiritual dryness. This is something that we don't like to talk about in the Western church as a whole, and we hate to talk about in the charismatic church because it doesn't fit, I think, our egoic ideal. It's a part of the shadow, but it's a part of the reality. And this makes people feel deep shame. Some of you are in the room tonight, and you're looking around seeing all of these people experiencing the Spirit of God at a deep emotional level, and you feel little to nothing and you feel shame, and you feel anxiety, and you feel doubt. 
There are all different things. You would have to sit with a spiritual director or a pastor to discern where that is coming from. And that could be from sin, it could be from rebellion against God, or it could actually be a sign not of your immaturity, it could be a sign of your maturity. It could be that it's actually not apathy, it's actually God doing a deep work. The way you know is whether or not you're sad about it. If you don't feel God's presence and you think, meh, that's lame, what's on Netflix tonight? Then I would really do business with God. If you don't feel God's presence and you think, I ache for you, God, more than ever, there's a good chance that's actually God at work in you. And what the contemplatives would say is that it's actually through the dark night, through seasons when we just don't have that same sense of God's felt presence, that God is actually doing the deepest work of healing and freedom in us, where he's actually liberating us from our trust structures, our motivations, and our emotional sources and he's purging us and he's purifying us. They would say it's like purgatory before, they were Catholics, don't judge them, but purgatory before purgatory, where God is doing this deep inner work of, of refining and freedom and healing to actually bring you through to the other side to greater love than ever before. Now, whether you agree with that paradigm or theory, that's up to you, but when I read the Psalms, I see it all over. I see it all over. And I think that for some of you tonight, I would just love to pray for you. If you're, I don't, and I, that might be a little scary, and again, I don't know your tribe well enough to know what landmines I just stepped on, but I love you, and that's what I was praying about this morning. Um, but if that's where you're at tonight, as whoever comes to lead us, maybe we could begin, I'm done, finally, um, but maybe we could begin with that, with praying for people that are in that place. Oh, 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 oh,